Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. And I just made the person sitting across from me crack up. His name and title, our senior writer, Jonathan Strickland. Uh, but reverse that. Yes. I love the band. We all do. But there's other things in life, you know, that's more important. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, we're not going to be talking a lot about bands, per se. No, but we are talking about music. Definitely. The history of music and video games. And um, I have an interest in this because, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a gamer. I enjoy playing video games. But... Uh, I really had early on a very uh, deep fascination and admiration for some of the greats in video game music. And um, you have to remember, Chris and I both come from an era in which home video games either had no music at all when they first came out or, or no sounds at all when they first came out or the sounds were, let's call them primitive. <laughs> well, I, I – well – I don't know. I, I think that's uh, that may be an oversimplification because we had, well, you know, the early 
pong uh, games. Well, yes, beep boop. You're right. That's incredibly sophisticated. I retract my statement. Beep boop is an amazing, amazing soundtrack. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, let's just point that out. Now we we've talked about the history of video games in different contexts in many in many podcasts. Now. Sure. Yes. Um, and yeah. not to get back into that, but po- you know, video games are are several decades old now. Yes. Okay. The first one that I found, according yeah. to my research, was Pong. Mm. Nolan Bushnell's amazing video game Pong with Magna- those magnificent octopus. Yeah. His magnificent octopus. I, actually, actually, I I I still enjoy Pong to some degree. I, it's very simple, but sometimes the simple games are are fun. Yeah, I, don't, if, if I wouldn't play no, it exclusively. If there's no paint for me to watch dry, I love a good oh, game okay. of pong. All right, well, all right, okay, fair no, enough. No, no, but no. yes, I actually do like playing pong too. I'm just I'm grouchy because my medication is wearing off. <laughs> Note to self: Don't record more podcasts with with Jonathan when he's sick. Sorry. Um. So yeah, pong. Okay, we're not talking a lot of soundtrack here, but it did have at least have noise. It had so- sound effects that went along with the ball hitting the paddle, and then of course the ball missing the paddle, also hitting the walls and hitting the walls. Yes, beep, boop, beep, boop, and um, <clears throat> to to elaborate on that, before uh, Pong came out, there were a few home game systems, mm-hmm. uh, but none of them. Incorporated sound. They were absolutely silent. Yep, yep. Now, um, one of the uh, the games that I had sort of forgotten about, and I, basically I, I went to uh, in search of video game music history, and I found mm-hmm. it a really awesome timeline by Glenn McDonald out there, if you can find it. Uh, should be pretty easy to find. Um, but uh, he, he brought up one that I had completely forgotten and didn't think of as a video game, but and it's really, I guess, technically not, but as an electronic game, Simon. In uh, 1974, yes. and I didn't realize it was that old. Um, but yeah, uh, Simon it revolves around sound because you're trying to uh, match the uh, colors and and lights and sounds um, in a pattern. And it's a very very simple game. You just try to repeat. It goes you know from the first note to the second note to the third, and you're supposed to repeat back the pattern that it plays for you, and right. uh, until you finally. Miss one and it right. buzzes. It gets too complex for you to be able to follow. But uh, <clears throat> but yeah, that's it's funny because I had I had completely not thought about that as an electronic, uh, you know, a, a step in the history of electronic gaming and yeah. sound. Um, but uh, the next one he mentioned was uh, another favorite of mine back from my days hanging out at the skating rink. Um, Taito's Gunfight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which was the first to use uh, rather than using hardwired circuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used the actual microprocessor to make the sounds. Yeah, we should point out that these early game systems, everything was hardwired into the console. Like the Pong game, you couldn't play other games on that system. That's all it did Yeah, was yeah. play the variations of Pong. Yeah, And so all the sounds that the console could make were hardwired into the circuitry. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing beyond that. And a lot of these early games, like Simon, same thing. If you had a Simon, it's not like you could suddenly play music, I mean, apart from music that would have four notes to it and a little eh noise if you got any, anything wrong, wrong. You couldn't play a song on it. No, no. Because it only had those four tones it was capable of making. Yes. Now, that's, you know, in, in contrast to, to other machines, um, uh, actually, it reminds me a little bit of Loops, which just came out 
uh, in the last year. I have one of those. You do have loops? Mm-hmm. So do I. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I didn't know that. But yeah, you can you can actually play music on that to some degree. But the right. sound there are far more advanced sounds on that. Um, another system, uh, actually <laughs> one that I own, the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Also had hardwired sounds on it. Yeah, um, you were you were limited. The, the the people who would program games that would come on the cartridges, which are using ROMs, yes. you snap into place in the cartridge slot. Read only memory. Yes, uh, the people who programmed games had to take advantage of the sounds that were hardwired into the console itself. Yeah, it was a very limited sound library. And so you know what what you had to deal with was you know your standard. And lots of yeah. uh, little. St- I, I I still remember the um, McDonald brought brought it up, but I still remember the uh, the tank sound from combat. That right. Rawr, 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 rawr yeah, there were noise. there were various beeps and bloops that were at different pitches, so you could make some very very primitive music. Uh, essentially, you would program it, hard program it onto the cartridge, and mm-hmm. that would tell the console, okay, make these noises. Mm-hmm. So this is still like besides the the gunfight game. These are more like Simon, in a, in, as far as music goes. They're more like Simon than they are a computer with yes. a, a dedicated sound card or system for handling sound files. Yes, just just to to clarify, Gunfight was an arc, standalone arcade game. Yes, and so was the initial version of Pong. But uh, there were Pong and its many many clones uh, made it into the home, and, and along with the uh, the Atari twenty six hundred. Um, but it, do you know what the uh, the first uh, system was that uh, took advantage that didn't have to be hardwired on a home system. Uh, if I had to guess, I'd say it was the NES. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> it was another system that you probably did not have. I don't think you've ever mentioned having What's it. That? The Odyssey Two. No. Um, no. <laughs> had programmable. <laughs> stop laughing. Had programmable cartridges, and the programmers could encode sound a sound library on the cartridge itself. Um, so, and it also had speech synthesis, mm-hmm. which explained why it sold so well. Oh, yeah. wait a minute. The Intellivision also had speech synthesis. Yes, it did. Yes, it um, did. It usually was pretty primitive. There were normally just a few words that each game would be able to do. I had B-17 Bomber. <laughs> That's exactly how it sounded, too. I'm not, if any of you guys had that game out there, you know what I'm talking about. Well, actually, uh, uh, McDonald's said that Major League Baseball was the first talking game. Did yeah. you have that one? With Strike. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had that one too. Ni- 1979. Yep, I had that game as well. <laughs> yep. I'm not proud of this. No. I, it's okay. Well, you know what? At the time, though, it was uh, it was a big deal. Yeah. And, and it's funny. Uh, uh, one of the things that, he, that McDonald pointed out in his timeline was um, even though these systems were primitive in terms of sound design and soundscaping, uh, compared to now, I mean, what we have now, we've got actual songs from regular recording artists that are actually yeah. encoded into the game. Um, well, even without that level of sophistication, they still provided um, a lot of character. context and, and character and richness for the the, the game player. Uh, he specifically mentioned Space Invaders. Yes. Because you hear the marching, <laughs> and, and, and as they get closer and closer to the planet, it speeds up. And you hear the sound of it speed up, and that and, that you know constant, you know, increasing. It triggers your panic response. It does, and you wouldn't think, you know, oh, yeah, that's that's kid stuff. That's no big deal. It, it really does have an effect, and it has effect on on how you feel when you're playing the game, and increases your 
your desire to kill off those little buggers. Yeah, yeah. So you can face another wave of those little buggers. And, and some of the early arcade games, like well, you know, things like Pac-Man mm-hmm. and Donkey Kong, had their little little tiny elements of music to them. It was almost like a jingle for a commercial in the sense that it was not terribly sophisticated, not terribly long, but very very catching. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we, yeah, you can do that if you if you try that to someone and they do that. What Chris just did that means that they were around in the early '80s and they played a lot of Donkey Kong. Yes. Um, unfortunately, as I was doing research for this podcast, I got sidelined by VGMusic.com. Yes, the video game music archive. Oh God. And it has I, like well, all I, those different files that you can listen to the the music from those video games there's a good hour of my life that just disappeared and i don't know where it went well let's do you mind if i if i skip ahead a bit i mean we're talking about a lot of the arcade games and a lot of the the uh like atari based games but really the atari system was pretty primitive i was just going to ask you a trivia a quick trivia question uh hit me do you know uh, really no uh <laughs> i'm grouchy he never says that i will take it out on tyler um he had one thing to do today <laughs> Okay, so do you know who wrote the music for Donkey Kong? I do not. It was, in fact, Miyamoto-san himself. Oh, it was Miyamoto. Yes, Shigeru Miyamoto, who wrote the music for, for Donkey Kong on a small electronic keyboard, yeah. according to uh, according to Glenn <laughs> McDonald. So, um, Miyamoto is a giant in the is, video game industry. He is so awesome. But I had no idea, and it's it's funny to show you that, that again, shows you what how ground level he was on this whole thing. <laughs> well, the reason anyway. the reason why I was going to skip ahead was that if if we want to talk about home consoles, which really yeah. and we, we should. We, yeah, we eventually are going to be focusing mostly on the console system because, you know, the arcades eventually faded from popularity, not that they don't exist anymore, but in the United States they're few and far between. And the development for games tends to be more uh, focused on the home market than on the arcade market in the United States. There are still mm-hmm. places like Japan where mm-hmm. arcades are huge, but um, not in the United States so much. Well, I wanted to talk about the original Nintendo system and how it was uh, kind of a, a, a huge jump ahead of everything else. Okay. Now, one of the reasons why, uh, when I say huge jump ahead, I mean it's primitive compared to today's consoles, but at the time was a big deal. It had four whole channels for music. Well, when you think about it, the NES was it came out in the mid eighties. Yeah. And four channel stereo was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And you gotta remember that most of these game systems had one channel. Mm-hmm. Like so if there was a sound effect, it had to interrupt the music. Mm-hmm. Or so if there's so like when Mario would jump and go doo doo yeah. that little thing it would it would interrupt the music in the middle of it right um, so so having a system that would allow you to play four channels of sound was a big deal now one of those channels was usually used for sound effects mm-hmm. and the other three would be used in various forms for music um, I read about uh, uh, game composers who would try and tr- figure out ways to make a a four note chord which mm-hmm. is hard to do if you've only got three channels. Yeah. So what they would do is they would do a, instead of doing a true chord, they would do essentially a broken chord. They would play the notes back to back so quickly that to us, it sounds almost like they were played simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So so you would get the effect of the chord without actually truly playing a chord. Mm-hmm. And then there were other game developers who would 
um, allow for music to take over. And then when a sound effect comes in, it would drop one channel out of the four out so the mm-hmm. sound effect could take place. Um, yeah, because typically, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of our uh, musician listeners are going to say, well, you would, you know, a chord really only requires three notes. Sure. But you would want um, the richness and depth of additional uh, octaves in there, too. Right, right. And and I want to mention one guy in particular okay. as really being instrumental, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's a little pun for you. Uh-huh. Uh, in the development of video game music as far as, as its effect in the game industry. I'm interested to see who this is. Uh, Koji Kondo. Ah. The composer for both Super Mario Brothers mm-hmm. and Legend of Zelda. Ah, and the, yes. The reason why I, I'm singling out Koji Kondo, and please, people, don't write into me and tell me that I should talk about some other composer, because we're going to talk about a few others before the end of this. But um, the reason why I wanted to single him out and, and mention him is because uh, he sort of created this this idea in the video games of different environments having different soundtracks. Right. So when you moved from one environment into another, you would get a new uh, tune playing in the background, and this would enhance your, your video gaming experience. Now, with Super Mario Brothers, it was pretty simple. There was one tune for when you were above ground, and there was one tune when you were in the, the dungeon levels. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was a different one when you were underwater. So the interesting part there is that this this really gave composers uh, for video games, it really gave them a shot in the arm saying, oh, you know, this can be more than just adding a little extra element into a video game. It's more than just the icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. There's there's an element here that can be intrinsic to the video game playing experience. Now, at the time, most of the composers for video games were working exclusively with one developer. Mm-hmm. And... In a way, actually, some of the earliest video games, the composers were people who were just on staff who happened to also be musicians. Right. So, uh, you know, in the video game industry, when it first started out, they didn't have the resources or the clout, really, or the prestige to attract, quote unquote, real composers. Mm -hmm. Now, I I say, quote unquote, because I consider the guys who came up with these video game tunes to be real composers, because, I mean, a lot of these tunes, I'm still a big fan of. Yeah, you're you're speaking of people who are dedicated to composing. That's right. what they do. That's, as that's their, their main that's their main occupation. job. Right. And then eventually, you got to a point where video game developers would be able to hire someone who specifically specialized in music. But even mm-hmm. then, they were another person on the company payroll. It's not like you commissioned someone to compose music for your video game. Mm-hmm. The the thing that makes the video game music really interesting that I think uh, uh, Koji Kondo. Uh, kind of launched was this idea of the interactive experience in that things that the player does uh, changes the environment in some way. And in this case, it would change the music that's playing in the background, depending on where the player was. Yeah. And that's fundamentally a different experience than composing music for either a film or just composing music, period, like Mm -hmm. creating a symphony, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Because in those, it's the audience is passive, Right. There's nothing the audience can do that's going to alter the the progression of music short of causing a scene at a live symphony. Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> it's been done. No, I done don't. Done hundreds of years ago. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm tired of being thrown <laughs> out of all the symphony halls in the United States. Though I could, you know what? Still haven't been thrown out of the opera house in Sydney. So uh, anyway, the there's a goal. The uh, <clears throat> you, 
it's it's it seems like it would almost be closer to movie music, it, and in, it's, in a lot of ways it, than it would yeah. be to traditional yeah. symphonic music because right. it's programmatic. It has a, it has a theme to it, and yeah. it actually is is helping tell the story. Right, it's meant to help elevate the experience. But even with movie music, you still have a set, uh, a set series of events. Right. Well, that's why I said closer to exactly, exactly. But but. To just to elaborate on your point, the reason why it's even different from that is mm-hmm. the second time you watch that movie, that movie, unless you're watching some really weird choose your own adventure thing, is going to progress the exact same way you saw it the first time. Clue anyone? And the hundredth time. Okay, sure. Clue, the <laughs> end of Clue, for those of you who don't know, Clue came out in like 1984 starring Tim Curry and was phenomenal and had three different endings. Um, but but apart from that, in most situations, the, the eight hundredth time you watch the movie is going to be the same as the first as far as the progression of scenes go, barring director's cuts and all that mess. So in other words, the composer does not have to create musical segues or musical themes that will be incorporated or perhaps mixed in with other themes based upon what the character's going through. So this is also the era in which I think... Possibly because uh, a lot of us grew up with this type of music, but I think this era is also what inspired um, what would later become, uh, you know, people who play these kinds of uh, video game scores for others as, uh, you know, a symphonic piece and things. Because some of this music is just so memorable for yeah. us. Uh, and I wanted to mention um, the work of uh, Nobu uh, Nobuo Iomatsu. Is that the guy who did Final, Final Fantasy? Fantasy? Yeah, because that for so many people is that's a big, like the, big deal. The definitive video game music for a large portion of the uh, players out there. Not me, because I like playing games that make sense. But you know, <laughs> people who enjoy Final Fantasy, I don't know what's wrong with you, but they're oh, I'm on medication. <laughs> yeah, blame it on that. Direct your hate mail to no. Um, so no, off brand, but no, they uh, medication. yeah. But yeah, they uh Final Fantasy has soundtracks available. Yes. Um and you know, I, I don't know that when all of this started, when the video game craze started, people would have assumed that this you'd buy a soundtrack for a video game. What maybe not, but it happens and it's not unusual anymore. No, in fact and, and there are live performances of video exactly. game music. Exactly. Everything from I've seen some great a cappella uh renditions of classic video game music where they run through several, like including Super Mario Brothers and Legend of Zelda and 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 you know, the classic games of the NES era all the way up. Yeah. <clears throat> See that's that's all from this period. So I think right. that's this that period is really when it, it's taken off to the point where it's a something that's noticeable. Right. And then so so the NES really helped set some standards. The next big leap yes. <clears throat> was a uh, Probably from in 1995 with the introduction of the Sony PlayStation. Oh, so I mean, this is a big leap. Okay, there, there, there were You're skipping over quite a bit of yeah. Stuff. There were incremental improvements with the systems between the NES and when the PlayStation came out. Don't get me wrong. Um, there were and there were some great video game songs that came out during that time. But when the Sony PlayStation came out, that allowed up to 24 sampled voices. Yes, to play. Um, now again in the in the previous generation, NES, you could only play discrete sounds capable that the, that the machine was capable of sending to the TV. Mm-hmm. The PlayStation allowed you to actually sample music. 
Yep, it even uh, even lets you uh, use effects like looping and reverb, yeah, uh, which you you couldn't do before. And it and it also you know had CD quality CD quality audio since yes. r- rather than using cartridges as so many of these other games did in the past, we were actually dealing with an optical disc. And it allowed for three different types of music within video games. The first Good, one, bad, and terrible. <laughs> You could argue that. I'm teasing. The first one was uh, Musical Instrument Digital Interface. MIDI. MIDI. Uh, now, MIDI is it's essentially like a language, really. Uh, and depending upon the synthesizer that's in your um, what? I was just going to mention, you know, some of them are very tiny and give you the force. Oh, good Lord. So <laughs> not the MIDI-chlorians. Um, the, you hate those. I do hate them. <laughs> Passion that burns brighter than a thousand exploding suns. No, so the so so MIDI, you know, it's it's a any any device, any Mm -hmm. computer that has a synthesizer in it, can play back uh, the uh, information stored in a MIDI file, and um, depending upon the synthesizer, it all sound different in each machine, right? Right. So so MIDI is not like a a standardized sound. It's a standardized way of recording, like of presenting music. It's kind of like a piano roll, an old player piano. So you have two different player pianos, and one of them's in the style of a grand piano, and one of them's in the style of a honky-tonk piano, and you put the same roll of piano player paper in them. Mm -hmm. One of them's going to sound very different from the other, even though they're both playing the same notes. Yes. Okay. So the Sony PlayStation was capable of playing MIDI, music it was also capable of a uh, playing mods or digital modules oh yes i remember that now it, it's worth noting that some computers had been using these different types of formats for years but, yes but they weren't really common in home video game consoles right. probably because the the hardware i'm, I'm guessing hardware needed uh, to do that was probably going to be pretty expensive. Well, yeah, comparatively like in computer games, this this ability had been there for years because this is the era when we've already got sound cards for computers like Sound sure. Blaster mm-hmm. and Roland and all those devices that would come out. And you would you would actually install the sound card into your computer, which would give your computer the capability of playing back these kinds of sounds. You yeah, plug speakers into them, and then you'd have that music. This was before computers would come standard with sound cards. You know, now, most times, if you go out and buy a computer, there's at least some sort of sound card pre-installed right. um, where it'll play back these, these file formats. But back in the day, you had to do it yourself. Now, like I said, it took, like Chris was saying, it took a while for the consoles to catch up. The Sony PlayStation was the first one. So, so these digital modules, what was interesting to me about these is that it would allow you to record the sound of an individual note of of a, a particular instrument. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you would record every sound that a tenor saxophone can play individually, right. each note. You would then record every single note that a uh, that a, a piccolo can play. You would record every single note that a violin can play, and so you would have a sample of each of those notes, and then you could build music based on that library of sounds uh, and the the various notes they're able to play. Mm -hmm. And you could um, sort of synthesize the sound of uh, actual music. And it it was okay. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was obviously synthesized stuff. But if you were really good at programming with mods, you could make some some decent music. Now, the problem is that mods... Uh, are tend to be larger file sizes, 
Yes. And MIDI is actually a very small file size. Yes, it is. And so that's one of the reasons why it was so popular in early games, because it didn't take up a lot of space. And you could dedicate that space for things like gameplay. It's also and why graphics. It, sorry. No, no, please. I was going to say it's also why it was so popular in the mid nineteen nineties on people's home pages. Yes, because you could host a MIDI file on your home page and you didn't have to worry about going over your tiny little cap yes. for your web page. So that's why if you visited a web page in the early nineties, early to mid nineties, you had that looping MIDI that played some irritating tune oh, and, and it was terrible. And I awful. had those. Uh for me it was Rule Britannia was one of them. And Yo-Ho, <laughs> A Pirate's Life for me was another. Because I had a page on the British Navy and I had a page on piracy. And you'll never find them, people, so don't worry about it. Do they still exist? Uh, I think even if you went in the Wayback Machine, you would have trouble finding it. I, I can't even tell you what the address is now. It's okay. been too long. That's just funny. So <laughs> we're releasing the Jonathan Strickland Find His Homepage from 1994 <laughs> Gosh, contest. Please don't. Please don't. I really don't want to see that again. But, uh, okay, so, so it could play the MIDI files, it could play the mod files. I said it could play three different types of music. The yes. third was referred to at the time as Redbook. Ah, Redbook. Which is CD, CD quality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Redbook, of course, you could make CD quality music. So you could create a song or, or a score with a full orchestra if you wanted to, mm -hmm. uh, record it to this format, and it would play it back like that. But the problem is that... It takes a lot of processor power to do it, and um, the the article I read, which let me let me pull up the title here, it was specific. the The article is called "Video Game Music, Not Just Kid Stuff" by Matthew Belinky. Mm -hmm. um, he said that uh, engineers at the time called it "stealing time from the laser," hmm. because the laser is meant to let you play the game. You know, it's reading the data off of the uh, the CD, mm -hmm. and if you were dedicating some of that to audio, it was stealing that time to play audio rather than to play the game. I see. So um, that was – but the PlayStation era really kind of pushed things to a new level. And uh, and since then, we've got much more sophisticated consoles that are essentially just specialized computers. Right. That could do essentially the same thing computers can do. So they can read all the different file formats that computers can read. So depending upon what the, what the uh, video game developer's preference is, that's what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. And um, – did you want to add anything? I've got a list of some of uh, some composers I wanted to go through, but um, and we've mentioned a couple of them already. I, I, I wanted to uh, to mention another note, um, and this is actually something that sort of came up in our uh, Sega Saga podcast. Yeah. Um, do you remember Resident Evil? Yes, it was one of the uh, very first games to start using realistic sound effects. Which, when you're playing a survival horror game, that's important. Can be it's, it's very important. Again, it adds a lot of depth and feeling to the game that you wouldn't have gotten with just music. But it's also uh, taking us a little that that other step closer to being in sort of an interactive movie environment where things are you you do have some control over it, but it's much more realistic yeah. and cinematic than it would have been playing you know Berserk. Yeah. You know, also not zombies, but, you know, still. Well, yeah. Robots. Yes, don't touch the walls. Um, yeah, and, you know, we mentioned earlier about live performances of these. Oh, yes. Uh, one of the performances I should mention uh, is it's a touring uh, show mm -hmm. called Video Games Live. 
Ah, yes, I remember that. It's an orchestral performance of video game music, and they even do things like they'll they'll do. There's usually a section that walks you through the early early days of video gaming, where, like I was saying, you know, the songs tend to be of jingle length. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be at most thirty seconds of music uh, that would loop. And so, but they'll they'll play that, and and it even begins usually humorously with Pong, mm-hmm. where the entire orchestra is going bing, bong, <laughs> bing, bong, but you know, works its way up to some of my favorites like Elevator Action and Gauntlet. Oh yeah. Do-do-do. Anyway, so the uh, the those that's a fun way of going to to experience this video game music, and they do work their way up to more modern songs, and in fact. There have been some composers for television and movies who have composed music for video games. So um, I have a, a quick list of some of the folks that I think would be interesting just to mention. Please do. Uh, Clint Bahakian. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. P- B-A-J-A-K-I-A-N is the fellow who wrote the music for Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic as well as some other Star Wars. Oh. So here's here's a challenge is taking a franchise which already has a very established sound to it, mm-hmm. right? So you have to essentially take the foundation that John Williams, the composer for the original movies, the the foundation he created and then to build on that in a way that is respectful and yet is not just a carbon copy of what's already come before. Right. Um Here's uh, uh, Mark Barrel, who wrote the music for the Crash Bandicoot series. Do a barrel roll. Barrel roll. Uh, <clears throat> David Burgode, Ratchet and Clank. Oh, yeah. Uh, Greg Edmondson, who did the music for Uncharted. And Firefly. There you go. See, there's that, that crossover. Uh, there's uh, Dan Forden. He did Mortal Kombat. Get over here. Um, Jason Hayes did the music for World of Warcraft. Uh, let's see. Michael, Ho- uh, Michael Hennig, who wrote the music for Baldur's Gate, one of the games I really enjoyed playing. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, Michael Hunter, who did the music for Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and Grand Theft Auto 4. The theme to Grand Theft Auto 4 is one of my favorite video game themes to come out over the last few years. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's the, the Soviet one, and it has this sort of mix between uh, kind of a, a techno sound and the old Soviet sort of music, that, that kind of military-style music from the Soviet era. And is I really enjoyed that one quite a bit. Uh, let's see. There's a uh, – well, we mentioned Koji Kondo, of course. Um, there is Michael Land, who, oh. who wrote one of my fav- – probably my favorite video game score of all time. Do you know what that is? No. It's the Monkey Island games. Oh, the Monkey Island. I actually have the theme to the uh, to the Monkey Island games on my MP3 player because that's how much. I, that's the only video game song. No, wait. I'm sorry. I also have Grand Theft Auto 4 on there, but those are the only two video game songs I have on my MP3 player. Uh, there's uh, Robin Miller, who wrote the music for Mist and Riven. Now you could argue that the music in those games was very much important to the the role of the game to to really get that feeling across. Mm -hmm. And then I have uh, Martin O'Donnell, who wrote the music to the Halo series, which is uh, very distinctive with the the men's chorus. And then later on, there's a full chorus. Uh, It's actually really some cool stuff. And what's funny is that, as I recall, the original 
recording of the men's chorus were that was actually guys who were working for Bungie who got together in a recording studio and did a oh, 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 oh. they just <laughs> they all just sang into the microphones. And I apologize, people. I'm sick. I don't know what I'm doing. But uh yeah, that's that's my my list. Now I know there's a thousand other video game composers out there, but that's that's just a quick list that I grabbed together. You know you know one I'm surprised you didn't mention. Who's that? Michael Giacchino. Oh yes, yes, Michael Giacchino, who who went on to write the music for television like Lost. Yes, and The Incredibles, which He's, is I'm actually more of a fan of his his uh, his movie music. He wrote for music for Medal of Honor, right? For yes, EA? he did. Uh-huh. See, it's all up there somewhere. See, yep, there you go. I didn't even have that written down. And that's the funny thing too. When you now that now that we have this kind of level of crossover that we we really didn't have before between. Mm-hmm. Movies, TV, and video games. I mean, they're all franchising one another. Once you come up with a good title, you try to... <laughs> Hit as many variations yeah. of media as you possibly can. So they're crossovers, too. He also you know, he also did the music for Alias, mm-hmm. um, but did the video games, too. I mean, the, the, uh, the Incredibles game, Up, uh, Ratatouille. I'm um, just looking at some of the video game titles. You can see them on his, his site. But yes, he did the whole the, uh, um, the Medal of Honor series and also did uh, Call of Duty, Finest Hour. Um, and some of the other Call of Duty games. So um, it's just it's just amazing too that that it has come this far. But wouldn't have been able to do that without the hardware necessary to to make that happen, and, and you know the programming ability to add that in. And there's some games out there that do this do this ability of this interactive experience of really meshing all the music together in ways mm-hmm. that are <clears throat> truly phenomenal. Uh, for example, the Red Dead Redemption game. Yeah. As, you know, it's a Western. It's set in the it's set in the West just as the old West is dying. It's the turn of the century, so it's mm-hmm. the early 1900s, and it has uh, music that changes based upon the environment you're in. So when you are in the the uh, old West, it's kind of that old West sort of music. When you move into Mexico, it's a lot of like horns and mariachi style music. Mm-hmm. But it also uses music to songs to a really really good effect. There's a um, Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spoiler alert for people who have not played Red Dead Redemption yet. <laughs> when you first um, manage to make your way to Mexico, um, as soon as you land, once you get past the big mission that lets you get there, mm-hmm. there's a song that plays. And it it is shocking when you first hear it. Not for the content of the song, but th- because you had only been listening to environmental music and uh, instrumentation up to that point. Mm-hmm. But then you get into Mexico and an actual song with lyrics and vocals, you know, it starts up and that's it's it's so powerful a moment that it surprises you. Yeah. And by the way, don't get off your horse if you want to listen to the song, because I found out the hard way when I saw something like, oh, there's a plant I need to pick up. And I got off the horse and started picking up the, the song faded away. And then I got back on the horse thinking, oh, maybe it'll come back. No, had to reload. But it was really, I mean, that that those kind of moments are. You can see that that's built on that foundation from yeah. the NES days. Yeah. You know, and and now we're just capable of making much more sophisticated music than we were back then. So I expect that the musical aspect of video games will continue to grow in importance, and of course, we'll we'll continue to cherish those older tunes that just sort of evoke that feeling that we got back when we were, you know, in our our our, our teens, early teens, playing. Various video games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that was awesome, and we didn't even get into things like the music games. 
Yeah, like specifically like, like Guitar Hero and Rock Band and and Parappa the Rapper. Parappa the Parappa Rapper. The Rapper. Parappa the Rapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All mm. the all the harmonics games. I mean, yeah. all the harmonics games. Yeah, there's there's tons of. That's a whole podcast to itself, just yeah. where music is the gameplay. It's not just to, to enrich it, but it is the gameplay. Yes. We'll have to do another episode on that at some point. So let's wrap this one up. If you guys have any, what's, you know, tell us what your favorite video game music is. Let us know. We're curious. Uh, tell us on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle there is techstuffhsw, or you can email us. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, and Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.